Welcome to this edition of the Sword and Trial podcast. The Sword and Trial is a ministry of Founders Ministries, and Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. And I'm Tom Askell, and glad to welcome you to this episode of the Sword and Trial because I have here with me in the studio Dr. James Renahan. Jim's been a friend and a faithful servant of the Lord for decades, and we're going to talk about some of his life's work today. But before we get into that, let me just remind you that we have a conference coming up in January 2024 where we will be addressing the theme of Remember Jesus Christ, the Supremacy of Christ. And you can register for this conference by going to founders.org and uh, finding out more information there. We're going to have Joel Beakey join us, Travis Allen, Conrad Mbewey, Phil Johnson, and looking forward to being down here in sunny Southwest Florida in January 2024. Well, Jim, thanks so much for uh, coming and being a part of the Sword and Trial today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. You are here teaching a course on Baptist symbolics for the Institute of Public Theology, and we're grateful for your willingness to do that. And I've uh, talked to several of the students that have been in your class today, and they've all uh, come out just with great joy in the things that they've been challenged to consider and the, the things that they're learning in the class. So thanks for doing that. Oh, well, you're welcome. I'm really, really pleased to do that. You know, one of the things that uh, the listeners to this podcast may be aware of, because we've talked about it a lot over the last year, a couple of years or so, is Dr. Renahan's involvement in producing materials that are tremendous for Baptist studies, and especially for Baptist symbolics, or the study of Baptist confessions. The first one that we produced is for the Vindication of the Truth. This is his exposition of the first London Baptist Confession of Faith. And then just a few months ago, as you may well know, we released to the Judicious and impartial reader, which is his exposition of the second London Baptist Confession of Faith, commonly known as the 1689. And uh, how long did it take you to write these books, Jim? What uh, Did you whip these out like in a <laughs> month or two or something? How'd you do uh, that? More like three decades. I've <laughs> been working on things like this. Yeah, well, I'm interested in knowing about that and mm-hmm. uh, just uh, talking about how you first even got interested in the study of Baptist Confessions. Well, yeah, that's an interesting question. At least I hope I give you an interesting answer. Um, When I went to do a PhD with Dr. Nettles at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, I I really wanted to work on the confession of faith because many churches had adopted this confession, but we didn't know anything about its authors or Mm. the churches. People might know the name Benjamin Keach and maybe William Kiffin, but that was it. And so I thought that maybe I could contribute something by working on this. And and Tom Nettles was the only person that I wanted to study under. Mm. I figured if there was anybody in the world who could help me work through that, it was Dr. Nettles. I really loved the time there with him. It was thoroughly enjoyable. But that set me off on the course. My uh, doctoral work was on the doctrine of the confession as it's uh, contained in the Confession of Faith. And then I've been teaching uh, the course that I'm teaching here for about uh, 25, 26 years. Mm. Uh, this is at least the 30th time that I've taught through the class. Wow. So all of that material through all those years and all the, the lecture notes and study and uh, adaptations, you, you know how lectures go. Every time you do it, hopefully they improve <laughs> and you add new material. And mm. been doing that and been wanting to put it into a prose form, not just an outline in the mm-hmm. lecture and so I've been working on that for a long time. I decided that 
though the bulk of my time is spent on that volume to the judicious and impartial reader and a study of it in symbolics, that I really wanted to be a little bit more comprehensive and start out with the first London Confession because it is really important in Baptist history. Mm. And it's the background for the confession. They belong together. They ought not to be separated. Mm. So I decided in going into print that I would do the first London as the first volume and then go with the second uh, second London for the second volume. Yeah, so yeah. that's fascinating. And, and so you went to Trinity to study under Dr. Nettles, mm-hmm. already being familiar with the 1689 mm-hmm. and uh, being a part of a church that adopted it. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah. And that's a that's different from where I started. Uh, I had uh, Dr. Nettles for my first history class at Southwestern Seminary in 1979, and he uh, then the next semester, I guess in the, the fall. We had I had a Baptist history with him, and he made us buy this book by William Lumpkin. Oh yeah, Lumpkin's Confessions of Faith. Mm-hmm. And I remember it cost like twenty dollars or something back then. And I thought, mm-hmm. why would he make us spend so much money on a book I will mm-hmm. never use? Mm-hmm. And um, I about, in fact, I bought another copy. I wore that copy out. Yeah, little did you know how <laughs> helpful that book would be. Yeah. So I had no idea of mm-hmm. Baptist confessionalism, but you had some idea, but wanted to d- dive in and learn more of the people involved and how it came to be. Yeah, and and I thought that I could be helpful to churches and and to pastors who held the confession of faith by giving them some information. What were their churches like? Mm. How did they practice the things that they state in their confession of faith? What what were they all about? What were their names? Mm -hmm. So I I worked hard. Um, I I was able to begin to access uh, 17th century materials went to England uh, for a term at Oxford to do research in libraries between London and Oxford and, and pulled all of that together. And it became my, my dissertation for the PhD. Mm. And then on from there. Yeah. And in 1998, was it that you went out to California yes. and yep. you're the founding dean mm-hmm. of RBS? Can you tell us about that and then how that has developed into what it is today. Yeah, well, this the doctoral work that I did really prepared me for that. We were, my wife and I and, and our family, uh, we were involved in church planting in central Massachusetts in our hometown. And I thought that that would be what I would do for the rest of my life because I was really happy mm-hmm. in doing that and God was blessing and the church was growing. But um, Westminster Seminary approached some of the pastors in Southern California and offered the possibility of having a Baptist come and work alongside of them to train men for the gospel ministry. Mm-hmm. And that developed into a proposal that was adopted, and uh, I was asked to go and, and take up that work. So we moved across the country mm-hmm. in 1998. We were there for 20 years. There were good years. I love those men. I esteem them. They were mm-hmm. kind to me, gracious in everything that they did. Um, but we, we decided maybe about the 2014 or 2015 to consider the possibility of expanding our program into a full-blown seminary. Mm. One of the difficulties that we faced is that uh, San Diego is a long ways away from a lot of the country and men didn't want to move and it's an expensive place to live. And, and uh, we also uh, back then you, you were involved a little bit back then. Mm. You remember it was difficult to find somebody who could go the, the, the requirements for the position were, fairly tight, so there were only a handful of men who qualified, where today that's not true. We have a lot more highly qualified 
scholar pastors who were able to teach. And so lots of things came together. We sought counsel from many, many people. Uh, we we uh, investigated a variety of locations, and it was finally decided that we would move to uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas and expand what was just an institute into a full-blown seminary program. Mm-hmm. So we've been there now almost five years, yeah. and it's really been wonderful. We've, we've just seen an enormous growth, and uh, we have a great faculty, really thrilled with the men who work with us. And I'm thankful to God for, for this, not what I would have expected in 1997, <laughs> yeah. but here we yeah. are today and uh, really thankful for it. Well, it's been encouraging to watch it grow and mm. see how it's developed and uh, love what is taking place there. I think it's one of the finest institutions we got around today. Oh, thanks. I'm grateful for the good work that you and the others are doing there. Graham Gundon, who is mm-hmm. an assistant pastor with me here at Grace Baptist Church. Sure sits in this chair. That's right. You're yeah. sitting in Graham's chair today, and he doesn't mind. Uh, Graham's a student there mm-hmm. and he's loved uh, his mm-hmm. opportunities that he's had in the classroom so grateful for all that you've done yeah thanks thanks and so you're you've given your life to understanding and studying baptist confessions of faith and would it be fair to say that uh first and foremost among them would be this second london baptist mm-hmm. confession yes yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. One of the things, Jim, that I've appreciated about you, I've heard you talk about this and, and uh, lecture on it in different places and read um, as this was being done, uh, going back and forth, looking over the, the manuscript. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about, the, appreciate about your approach is how you, you talk about the confession is, is woven together. Mm-hmm. And so it, it needs to be read, I think you say, back and forth or side by side, side to side. Yep. And that's a fascinating concept I've never heard, never considered. Mm. Would you explain that? Sure. Yeah, I, I use the language sideways or back and forth or a little bit more sophisticated to say horizontally. <laughs> <laughs> and I use that sometimes now. But what I mean is that oftentimes we approach documents like this as if there are 32 discrete units, Mm. that there are 32 chapters and we can just take one, sort of uh, pull it out of the body of the confession and study and think that we have all the information that we need. Where really what it is, it's a document that depends upon everything else that is contained in it. So that the, the first six chapters of the confession really lay out basic principles. Then you get into soteriology and how God saves us by way of covenant. Then you get into Christian liberty and finally the world to come. But these latter sections are dependent on what goes before. Mm. You don't deal with Christian liberty until after you've dealt with the doctrine of salvation and how God saves us. And you can't really deal with that until you have dealt with the, the nature of scripture, which is chapter one, and God and what God does, which is chapters three through six. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you have to, for example, one of my illustrations is you come to chapter nine of free will. And the first word of chapter nine is the word God. God hath endued the will of man. So before you can think about what free will is and how we are to understand it, you have to remind yourself of everything you learned about God back in chapter 2. Mm. So the, the early part of the confession lays down foundational issues. The latter part of the con- confession of faith fleshes them out. Mm. So by reading it sideways, you're, if you're in the beginning, you're thinking, what does this anticipate? If you're later on in the confession, you're asking the question, what does this fulfill? Mm. What has been anticipated by this? And it, it really brings alive, in my mind, the, the whole body of Christian doctrine. It makes it really beautiful. Yeah, and, and it uh, prevents 
a superficial reading mm-hmm. of the confession that might lead some to say, as has been charged, well, there's really no doctrine of the covenant mm. in the 1689 confession, or there's no chapter on the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, oh, well, they didn't think about the Holy Spirit, <laughs> right? Yeah, the Holy Spirit is woven all the way throughout the body of the confession of faith. Yeah. If you were simply to to take an electronic version and type in the word spirit, you'd pull out 50 or 60 references. Mm. You could put them together and you have a wonderful doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Mm. There's, there's also no chapter on the Father. Mm. Okay. If you're going to yeah. say that about yeah. the Spirit, right. say that about the Father as well. But it is interesting that Christ appears the most mm. of the three persons of the Trinity. Yeah. It's it's a Christ-centered document. And it's that's pretty biblical, isn't it? You I, know? I think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, the, I think it was J.I. Packer who used the phrase that, is I've latched on to that the Holy Spirit is a shy sovereign. You know, his mm. purpose is to magnify Christ. Yeah, and that's so, right. you know, it makes perfect sense to do that. So tell us a little bit about what has been the effect on you in your own studies, because you've approached this academically, but you've approached it as a pastor, as a Christian. And uh, what, what benefit has come to you as a follower of Christ from giving yourself to this study? Well, you know, certainly, I think that um, a deep study of theology, as found in a confession of faith, is um, something that leads you to a better understanding of worship. Mm. I really do. Um, you know, I it, in the the title of the book is taken from the epistle that they put at the beginning of it when they publish it in 1677, and in that epistle, they make the argument that they've put together the confession of faith for the benefit of the members of their churches, the dads who are leading their families and the kids Mm. who are being raised up and the wives of those families. They put it together for them, believing that a a good Christian is a Christian who's well instructed in the principles of Christian theology. It's not a book that was was published and put on the shelf for elders. Mm. It was a book that was made for Christian believers. And and that has helped me tremendously. You know... um, one of the most famous um, devotion manuals that was published during the Puritan era was by a man named Lewis Bailey. It was called The Practice of Piety. And it was out of print. It, it was printed over and over again in the 17th century, but then out of print until late in the 20th century. And when it was reprinted, Joel Beakey wrote the introduction, and he marveled at the fact that it had been so long since it had been printed. But why do I bring this up? Well, Bailey, in the practice of piety, you might expect the devotional manual to be sort of a how-to, do this, Mm. do that. But actually it isn't. He begins with a long, thorough chapter on the doctrine of God. Because in order to have genuine Christian piety, you have to know who God is. Mm. And that's what the confession of faith does for us. It gives us that sense of the greatness and the glory and the majesty of the triune God and of his kindness and graciousness to us in Christ by sending him to be the mediator, by then um, he offers himself in our place and we're granted forgiveness because we trust in him. We're taken into his family and we're adopted as his children and we are sanctified and set apart. And then by his spirit, he gives us the ability to do good works 
and to persevere in the faith and to enjoy infallible insurance, mm. uh, assurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine what that means, infallible yeah. assurance, not because I'm infallible in myself, but because Jesus Christ and his work is accepted by the Father and satisfies the righteous demands of God. And as I trust in him, I can know infallibly that I've been given the gift of eternal life. I mean, mm. it, it's just full yeah. of those wonders. Even the chapter on sin, uh, in, in the darkest place in the confession, which describes to us the nature of sin, the, the end of one of the paragraphs, after describing to us the depths of our depravity, says, unless the Lord Jesus sets us free. Mm. So that they don't leave you in the dark. Yeah. They give you a hope, a great hope, by shining that light of the gospel to us. That That's what I see there. And I've really come to appreciate that. Every time I teach through it um, in, in the way that we're doing this week, I'm just amazed at how wonderful Christian theology is. Mm-hmm. Not not even because it's our confession of faith, but because it's Christian theology, because it tells us of the glory of God and what he does for us through his son and by his spirit. Amen. And the framers of this document knew that. And oh. they were men who were shepherding the souls of yeah. others. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's exactly what they were doing. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about this idea that uh, I remember hearing early on when I first became aware of these old Baptist documents that were rich and trying to learn about them and study them and benefiting from them. Um, There was a a division that happened back in the 70s and early 80s amongst Calvinistic Baptists and some who said, well, the first Baptist confession, that 1644 confession, uh, that's the good confession. Don't, Mm. Don't take that second London Confession because those guys just went the way of the Presbyterians and they lost a lot and the first confession is different than the second confession yeah, yeah. and there was this big rift that was at least proposed by certain folks that I never saw and uh, I think you have demonstrably indi- shown doesn't exist but can you talk about the uh, the continuity and how the first confession indeed is not contradictory in any way to the second confession. Yeah, you know, I think that that came from, let's not put the worst motives on anybody, but it came from failing to understand the context of the confession and really no no understanding of the literature that surrounded the First London Confession. Assumptions were made based upon what we know in the 1970s and 80s about a confession that was more than 330 years old, and those assumptions were all wrong. Mm. When you put it into its context and you see what the purpose of it was and actually how they uh, presented their theology in the Confession of Faith, it's impossible to come to those conclusions. And there's a variety of ways that that can be demonstrated. One of them is simply the statement of continuity Mm. that's made in the preface to the second confession where they state that the theology is the same. But... Then you think about this. There, there's about 30 years difference be, that have passed between the first London and the second London. But you have many of the same men who are publishing the confession. The same churches that published the first are involved in publishing the second. And there are people in those churches who are have, have been part of churches that were committed to, the, to both confessions. Mm-hmm. You have a public record in which the contemporaries of the day are able to look at the literature and say, yep, that's the same. But then if if we look into the First London Confession and see the methods that they used, uh, once again, it's impossible to draw that conclusion because what they did was 
They stated that they were publishing this confession so that those who disagreed with them would understand what their commitments are, what their views are. Then they were criticized for it in print, Mm. and they revised it in 1646. And in the revisions, they answered all of the objections that were made to them, softening their language, even their language about believer's baptism, in response to the criticisms that were made. Now, one of the things I, I do in volume one is I show that it's not just that one criticism that came from a man named Daniel Featley, but actually in the body of the confession, they interact with a whole series of criticisms that are made of them, and they uh, amend their language so that they are able to ward off the criticisms that are made. They're, they're responding to I don't want to say enemies because they weren't really enemies, but they were pedo-baptists and mm-hmm. some of them treated them poorly, but they were responding to them in such a way as if to say, we don't believe those things. Please treat us well yeah. because we do believe the things that you believe and we are orthodox and we are committed to the same doctrines that you are. So I spent a lot of time. In fact, first the first volume is largely structured around those critiques and how the Baptists responded to the critiques in the Confession of Faith. It, it was very helpful to find all of these critics mm. and read their work and then see how the Baptists responded to them. Yeah, it's wonderful, wonderful. And the, the second London Confession, obviously and, and, and admittedly, draws upon the Savoy Declaration and the Westminster Confession, mm-hmm. but it doesn't hesitate to take exception where convictions require. That's right. Yeah, but Actually, both confessions rely on older pedo-baptist documents. Mm. First London draws upon the 1596 True Confession mm. written by English separatists in the Netherlands and also very heavily from William Ames's Marrow yeah. of Sacred mm. Theology. So they're drawing from pedo-baptist documents mm-hmm. in the same way that Second London does. The methodology is the same. Yeah, and in one sense, then that gives us a great uh, kind of paradigm to uh, follow. In man, let's let's acknowledge our unity mm-hmm. with those yeah. we disagree with. We mm-hmm. couldn't start churches with with them, but we can certainly just link arms with them on so much that yeah, we that's agree right. in the gospel. So that that true kind of ecumenism mm-hmm. can be served by a good study of the confession. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we see a lot of weak ecumenism. We don't want a part of that. Mm-hmm. But, boy, there's something right about mm-hmm. the unity that we have with God's people throughout the ages and around the world who have so much in common. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it, and it does remind us of the humility that we have to have when we disagree with others. Mm-hmm. We don't throw stones at them. We, we say we're sorry that we're not able to agree with you on this point, but we recognize that, you're a true church. Your ministry is a true ministry. You're brothers and sisters in mm. Christ, and we rejoice in that. We look forward to the day when around his throne we'll stand together to worship him. Amen. Amen. Well, let me ask you one more question, Jim. Um, why should a church consider this Confession of Faith, the Second London Confession, as adopting or consider adopting it for their own confession? What would you say? Yeah, well, if we go backwards... Um, its version in America was the most important version for Baptists in America. Uh, 1742, it was adopted by the Philadelphia Association, then in Charleston, South Carolina, then in Warren, Rhode Island, and that spread all the way through the 19th century. Uh, it, it was the standard for most Baptist churches here in the United States. But I would argue before that, uh, a church without a confession of faith doesn't have any guardrails to protect it. Um, Now, it probably has an unwritten system of doctrine that it's committed to, 
that can be confusing and can be easily changed. But it, it also doesn't have the mechanism in place to protect it from error. And the Bible, the New Testament clearly tells us that there are wolves who will seek to attack the church and lead people astray. A good confession of faith, especially this one for Baptists, provides to us a means by which we're able to be protected. Another thing that I would say, and this, I, I hope that I can phrase this the right way. Um, in many ways, our confession of faith is the last of the great confessions of the Reformation mm-hmm. era. There weren't any others that were written after that. And for that reason, it, it has the benefit of learning from decades of mm. how to express Christian theology carefully. It, it Some of the changes that are made in our confession are because of errors that snuck into English churches in after the Westminster Confession was written and after the Savoy Declaration was published in 1658. They're able to see those errors and to um, adjust the language mm. so that those errors are denied and won't be influenced, or the people of God won't be influenced by those things. So uh, I don't mean to say that because it's the last, it's the best, mm-hmm. although we're committed to it because sure. we believe it's the best. But I hope humbly we can say our fathers learned from others and have best been able to express the beauties of Christian theology because it's the last one. Yeah, oh, it's well put, well put. Well, well we appreciate your labor of uh, decades that's going to serve the church for generations. I, I th- This is a classic. It will uh, continue on long after you and I are gone. Uh, the Lord willing, and Christ does not return before. But we anticipate this to be uh, something that will be of great use to churches. It already has been. We Our initial printing, we're just about out. So we're having to reorder. But one of the things we want to make available to those who are listening to this podcast is an autographed set of these two. So would you be willing to do that, to sign copies? And I think we're going to give away two sets. And mm. I think uh, the way we do this, Hannah usually instructs me, but she didn't instruct me this time. So I'm just going to wing it. Let's All see right. if I get it right. If not, then those flags will begin to wave back there, and I'll have to rewind and try again. If you will... Tag Founders Ministries on social media. So you can do it on any of your platforms, social media, right? And also tag five other people and say something about this book. Just say something about Dr. Renahan, enjoyed Dr. Renahan, or, or appreciate Dr. Renahan writing these volumes on Baptist symbolics or the expositions of the Baptist Confessions of Faith, and you hope that you win a copy, then we will have a drawing from all those who do that. So you got to tag founders so we know that you've done it and tag five of your friends, and we will then have a drawing, and we're going to give away two sets of these books. Did I do that okay? All right, well done. How about that? I'm surprised. I usually have to have that very well scripted out for me. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd appreciate it if you would like it and share it. Let other people know about it, especially if you have Baptist friends or Baptist Mm -hmm. pastors, more particularly, that could benefit from this because um, these are wonderful documents, wonderful books that Jim has given a lifetime to study and has produced, and it is valuable. So, Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your ministry and your life and work. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks Thanks for joining us today on The Sword and Trial.